that I think has has really penetrated the public consciousness a lot more than it used to. Um, so it's interesting that you asked that. One of the one of the things that we've always known in the uh, freight forwarding industry or NBOCCs, which is sort of like a truck freight broker, but for ocean freight, uh, we've obviously, of course, always been intimately aware of the ways in which disruptions at one end of the supply chain or another can impact the other side. Um, it's, it's, you know, countries, and, I, and I've said this before, but countries sort of manifest or, or accomplish their needs in two ways, either, either via trade or either via conflict. Um, obviously, cooperation is, is far more preferred. And in, in, in that vein, right around in the early 1980s, China began to sort of set itself up as um, a manufa- you know, as a manufacturing hub that was very much part of part of the plan. And uh, the United States, uh, you know, we had historically been a, an economy that manufactured things. But as we transitioned more into a consumer spending economy uh, in the post-World War II era, we had this perfect storm begin to happen where it became very inexpensive to uh, outsource or offshore the manufacturing that we had historically done in the US uh, overseas. So that would either be to Japan or to China, to uh, Korea, Taiwan, wherever it may be. And that that became the business model, uh, the dominant business model for so long, the 80s, 90s, 2000s, even to today, uh, largely because you can, you're not just offshoring production and making it cheaper to source and manufacture a specific thing. You're also now operating within the tax regime of the other country, the environmental, regulatory, and labor regimes. And quite frankly, a lot of these countries that we out, you know, outsourced to uh, probably had a bit more, we'll just say permissive regulatory environments that allowed costs to stay down. Uh, so that became the thing. And with that, obviously, was as you're making things over here and you need to get them here, was the rise of the transportation industry to support that. And right around the same time in the 80s and 90s, the US, which had historically had this very strong uh, maritime capability, both from a shipbuilding side as well as from our merchant marine fleet, uh, we had lots and lots and lots of US flagged vessels that were carrying US cargo all over the world. Um, those ocean carriers lines that were historically based here uh, began to be sold uh, as well. Um, APL was the last of the majors that was a global uh, international player uh, as opposed to sort of regional or theater specific. Uh, in the 90s, they, uh, that, so that APL was American President Lines. Uh, at one time, all of their fleet of ships was named after American presidents. Um, so they sold off to uh, Neptune Orient Lines, which is based, I believe it was based in Singapore. Uh, and now APL has subsequently been sold to CMA CGM, the uh, French shipping conglomerate. So we don't really have, other than a couple of these small players, uh, this, this indigenous uh, shipping capability that can carry the commerce of the United States on water. Uh, so now we not only have outsourced our manufacturing to other places around the world uh, and built a very robust import model, built our rail infrastructure, our warehousing, our port, everything is built around the imports we bring in. Uh, now all of a sudden we're exposed to disruptions on the, the ship side as well. So COVID was really a perfect storm for uh, for the United States in, in some really negative ways. And you look at how the purchase order cycles work. You look at how um, it, COVID really sort of emerged during Chinese uh, Lunar New Year last year. And what you had is a situation where suddenly all the factories shut down because China went into lockdown. The ocean carriers, uh, which historically always expect volume to pull back during Lunar New Year, suddenly I had to idle a bunch of their ships because there was nothing to ship. Everything in China was shut down. 
And what I anticipated, what actually has occurred, was that China would undergo very quickly a V-shaped recovery um, on the manufacturing side. So for that two months that China was really shut down, you just have purchase order after purchase order after purchase order stacking up. And it would create this accordion effect where if vessels did not get put back into play very, very quickly, that backlog would become a sort of a permanent enduring issue because you can never get ahead of the problem. You can never get enough freight off the docks and onto the ships to get caught up. So as, as the year went on, that began to, you begin to encounter a crunch of things like auto parts, which are made in China. Uh, you know, early in the year, I, I half jokingly said, uh, gosh, people are going to be really upset if we get to Christmas time, they're not going to be able to get their PlayStation fives and Xboxes. Uh, but that's exactly what happened. Um, not only did you have the shortage of, um, you know, semiconductors or computer chips, uh, you had the inability to manufacture the stuff and then get it to the U S uh, air freight. You couldn't get it over here in time and air freight's obviously extremely expensive compared to ocean freight. So. Uh, we be, just began to see all these issues that just continued to compound and compound and compound. And then simultaneous to that, as demand has skyrocketed over the last year for ocean freight in the trans-Pacific and transatlantic trades, what we've now seen is ocean rates climb to these almost unsustainable levels. And that's beginning to create supply chains too, particularly big companies that are very dependent on the 5, 10, 15, 20,000 containers a year that they import to the U.S., uh, so you have this huge demand disruption that happened and then available supply uh, of ships and transportation assets uh, began to be disrupted, you know, at, you know, at the tail end of that. Um, so I'm not uh, maybe quite so familiar with, uh, with Nassim Taleb's work as, as you might be, of course, but uh, that concept of fat tails, you know, we're certainly living in that right now where uh, an initial disruption or an initial sort of event uh, has sort of spun off and become this very massive, uh, you know, second and third and fourth order event uh, for so many things. Um, so China recovered from it a lot faster than we did because they were actually the manufacturer. Um, but in a lot of ways, they're still very much stovepiped and bottlenecked there too and struggling to get things out. And, and um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really expansive impact that it's had on the global economy. But uh, the U.S. really started to feel it first. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it's very interesting because uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, in fact, revealed uh, this unprecedented interconnectedness of mm -hmm. uh, what I call global system, uh, which is basically uh, um, uh, the interconnected socioeconomic system. So you take global economy, you take global trade, global energy, and we saw also what happened uh, in April with the uh, uh, with, uh, price of oil, uh, also as a consequence just. Uh, you know, to, to, to what uh, happened to the disrupted uh, global supply chains mm -hmm. on the one side. Of course, it was not the only reason, but uh, we have also uh, basically what I call the global supply chains uh, um, is uh, they have become the blood, uh, the blood vessels of yes. uh, you know of the global system. So you cut one of them, and you immediately see effects somewhere else. You you cannot even predict exactly how how disruptive this effect will be, and how long term uh, oriented. So basically, it's important to understand that uh, the global supply chains have become. Uh, also networks uh, which uh, span across all continents and uh, countries and uh, are um, you know facilitating the flow of uh, global products but not just products uh, so you take also services you take uh, meanwhile data communication so it's a it's a it's a, it's a kind of an 
uh, un, un, unseen scope, right? Mm -hmm. And speed also of how they uh, function meanwhile. So uh, there is uh, another term that we can also use uh, derived from the work of uh, Taleb, which is fragility. So mm -hmm. basically, um, the the pandemic exposed also the fragility of uh, the global supply chains. And we've also seen that there is an asymmetry in the relationship. Mm -hmm. So there, there were certain dependencies on China. So uh, could you maybe elaborate a little bit as to how exactly these dependencies were um, were you know hitting for instance uh, uh, American interests so we will start first with this macro analysis because I want also to link geopolitics to 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 global supply chains so uh, what is your assessment and what you, what was your experience also as to how exactly these dependencies um, and of course the first thing that uh, come comes to my mind uh, is linked to medical supplies or to masks and medical equipment. Um, so, would you elaborate on that matter? Dependencies that are derived from disrupted global supply chains in going into the direction of China, of course, on the one side, and also what was the, 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 the reaction? Uh, are these dependencies still there on the American side, or has actually the um, uh, has the Trump's administration, and then of course now with the new administration, um, well introduced certain steps and certain measures to counter these dependencies? Yeah, I think if if you look at where our biggest vulnerabilities are with with regards to our dependencies on China, um, a, a lot of talk, of course, was focused around in 2020 on the medical supply chain. Um, huge number of precursor chemicals, things that are used, you know, they're essentially the raw materials of pharmaceuticals are manufactured in China or in some ways controlled by China, either through stockpiling behaviors or the manufacturing side. Um, but, you know, secondary manufacturing and, and final manufacturing is also being done there. Uh, and not just for medicines, but also for things like medical equipment, uh, some pretty advanced. Um, and if it's not, uh, if a machine, even if a machine's being assembled in the U.S., a lot of the guts and brains of that machine, whether it's the chips or uh, some of the different uh, components that it's needed to actually to actually function, are manufactured in China. Um, so we've we've in a sense made ourselves ex we're not just tied at the hip. We are inextricably linked. We cannot be separated from China right now uh, with things as they are, without pretty much a total collapse in the U.S. of the supply of things that we rely on. Uh, so medicines is one of them. Um, another thing is, is, uh, what we would call critical or strategic materials here in the U S. Um, that was something that very early on, uh, Trump was very, very aware of and issued an executive order in, in 2017, 2018, uh, basically saying we need a review of everything that we have in the U S that we, it's, it's a rare earth mineral, or it's a very difficult to find strategic material. Where does it come from and how do we ensure we have ready supply of it for the foreseeable future? And when you did that review, about half of there, there was 30-something materials on there, almost 40, and about half of them, China was either the number one or the number two supplier to the United States of. And so when you're talking about a country having one influence over another at a very ground level, um, that's a very precarious position to be in and makes it very difficult to do certain things, not just from a trade standpoint, but geopolitically. Um, it could be fertilizers for food, or it could be a, a certain type of metal that we need to um, 
you know, alloy with another metal to make fuselages for our, for our fighter jets, whatever it could be, right? Um, so those, those sorts of issues happen. So we have to be very, very careful. We can't cut off our nose to spite our face in that. China on the other side, though, uh, because it has an enormous population, a population that is, from a consumer spending standpoint, been upwardly mobile now for a generation, um, they have a bigger appetite for things like meat. Um, they have a bigger appetite for energy. And China is in no way self-sufficient from an energy standpoint. It's not self-sufficient from a food standpoint. Uh, something only like 8% of the land in China is even arable. Uh, it's a massive country, um, but it is a massive country that, that doesn't actually have near enough geography, you know, good land to feed the people. So they have their own vulnerabilities that uh, I won't say the U.S. should exploit, but at least we do need to be aware of the fact that there is sort of this bilateral or mutual need, uh, just albeit for completely different things. Uh, and, I, and I think that that does get lost uh, quite a bit when people talk about this. They see the world through very uh, uh, sort of unitary terms, right, or unilateral terms. It's, it's all about great power competition versus our military. Well, it's really not. It's, it's the fact that, that our financial systems, our manufacturing systems, our consumer spending, all of these things are tied so tightly together that there is no one-size-fits-all solution. You're talking about... Um, the change of something like that. It took a generation to build it. It's going to take a generation for that to, for this process to sort of begin to unwind or untangle itself. Um, so, you know, I do see a lot of people saying, well, if we just did this, then we'll get the policy result we want. And, and that's just not how the world works at this point. Too much infrastructure, uh, too many jobs, too much of our, our economies have built up around this relationship. Uh, that, that simply just tearing it apart, root and stem, uh, you know, would, would have extraordinarily adverse effects on the global economy, not just on the two. Mm -hmm. So uh, just to wrap up um, the whole debate about the systemic decoupling, which was mm -hmm. initiated uh, during the previous administration, um, and it looks like, I mean, even if the narrative uh, will not be that, uh, you know, tough, uh, it looks like that this administration will be also um, quite, quite uh, tough on China. I mean, if you, if you um, follow the news and uh, the, 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 the most recent, uh, actually, statements, it quite, it's quite obvious that, uh, you know, that there will be uh, tension uh, in diplomatic terms, uh, certainly in other terms as well, between these two countries. Uh, but uh, to wrap up uh, this kind of systemic decoupling is um, not very realistic if we consider the entanglement between uh, the two countries in terms of uh, global supply chains, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's really a very complex network and it's not easy to uh, reconfigure uh, these uh, this, this supply chains uh, in a quick manner, for instance, right? Is this correct um, assessment? Absolutely, you know, and, and it's, uh, you know, about 90% of all commercial commerce in the world moves on water. And, you know, we're down to less than really 20 carriers worldwide that, that have any sort of scale uh, of ocean shipping or maritime assets. And so when you have that, then those, those ships, they're big, they're expensive, they cost a couple hundred million dollars a piece to build these days because of how massive they are. Um, they're gonna be deployed in the trades that obviously put the most, you know, put the most money in the bank account. 
So that's the trans-Pacific trade and the Eurasian trade, uh, that trade that happens from, you know, the Chinese East Coast to, to Europe uh, and into the Med, um, the transatlantic trade uh, between the United States and, and, and Europe uh, and the Mediterranean. Those, those other trades, those ancillary trades really are driven by the activity that's happening in the trans-Pacific between mainly between the United States and China, but also to some extent, Mexico and Canada. So that that's where, again, when we talk about systemic decoupling, you're, you're talking about um, all of the inf port infrastructure that has built up, all of the rail infrastructure that has built up in both countries, all of that is going to have to be dealt with. It's not just going to be, we'll stop making stuff here and start making it here. We're going to have to have a very measured response to how we do this in a way that doesn't really effectively destroy both economies simultaneously. Um, so yeah, some combination of reshoring from China to the US, nearshoring, moving things back to uh, Canada or Mexico or you know Costa Rica or South America, whatever it may be, to, but to get it within our own hemisphere. Uh, and then offshoring from China to other uh, Southeast Asian or Indo-Pacific nations is, is, uh, is also an option as well. So it's going to have to be, I think, some combination of all of those three done over a 15 or a 20 year period. And it's very interesting uh, that uh, you've uh, made this important point because um, speaking of um, global trade, uh, the most share of it is still being conducted via maritime routes, as you mentioned. Uh, this is the case uh, not just for the United States, but uh, for the most of the um, uh, global and regional actors. And uh, if we take uh, the European Union member states, the European powers, they also actually conduct uh, trade uh, via maritime routes. Most of it, uh, over 70% is actually, um, you know, takes place. Uh, and these are the very same maritime routes that are being secured by the United States, uh, be it through a global military presence or through uh, alliances and uh, regional partnerships with uh, third countries. Now, what is also interesting, and I think this will be very interesting for the for the viewers, is to uh, touch upon the topic of uh, global choke points because mm -hmm. these are maritime these are maritime. Um, uh, points of intersection, uh, mm -hmm. which are significant for, specifically for oil, but also food supply. And um, many of these uh, choke points are also situated uh, in uh, conflict zones. Mm -hmm. uh, so each one of these choke points, uh, if disrupted, would actually lead to uh, further uh, cascade uh, effects uh, throughout the network right mm -hmm. so it's uh, also important to mention that uh, many of them are situated in the indo-pacific um, region yes. and uh, this is one of the reasons why i think and i'm convinced uh, this is what i call the indo-pacific decade i think that the um, so, so to say the centrality of of, uh, of these problems. So you take the reconfigurations that you've mentioned towards uh, American allies and partners away from China, this specific region. So you take uh, Japan, you take India, you take Australia, uh, you take South Korea. So then you have also the situation that uh, some of these choke points are based exactly in this, uh, you know, in this, uh, 
areas uh, which uh, you know have witnessed uh, many conflicts uh, in the past and are still far away from being peaceful and uh, you also have uh, the situation uh, in which um, um, a certain um, reconfiguration of supply chains is also taking place on the side of China and we are going to discuss this issue a little bit later. So let me just uh, point to some of these um, choke points. Uh, mm -hmm. um, one of them is uh, in the Indian Ocean, this is the Malaccan Strait. Then we have the Gulf of Hormuz in the Middle East and the case with India. The tensions between India and uh, other neighbors, but also, of course, the tensions between in, uh, Iran, sorry, uh, Iran and uh, regional neighbors, and then Iran and uh, United States are still very much present. We have the Suez Canal. We have the, uh, then we have also the Strait of uh, Bosporus, which is the Turkish uh, Strait, which is in the wider Mediterranean and Black Sea area, and of course, very, very. You know, important, and then we have also uh, the one uh, strait of uh, Bab El that's uh, basically forming the gateway for the vessels to pass through the Suez Canal. So, as you can see, this is uh, going to be the network will be very much affected by geopolitics. Uh, so, my question to you is uh, because you also have experience with uh, agriculture and food supply chains, do you think that this will uh, be further? Um, the case uh, for for this decade where we will see actually further disruptions and further tensions along this this uh, supply chains how do you and yeah. do you also see that uh, there is going to be the situation in which regional players such as india uh, or japan and australia will try also to facilitate uh, kind of uh, regional networks away from china how realistic is this yeah, I think um, the, the the question of food, um, and, and it's something I've talked a lot about, is is I, I hold that there are really um, three, what maybe four if you count defense material, but what what I consider last dollar or final dollar commodities, which is what will a government spend its final dollar on to secure peace, and and that is really true, uh, particularly when it comes to China, which has a very uh, long, at least as far as this government's concerned, going all the way back basically to uh, the revolution in the 40s, uh, food security being an enormous issue uh, for the Chinese people. And you can really set your clock by if there's food insecurity, what some of the, the maybe some of the political behaviors will be. Um, so when, when you consider that that is an enormous lever for them, energy is too, water to some extent as well, when you uh, look at how they've uh, managed their river systems and things like that. Uh, but really food continues to be, I think, the, the, that underlying psychological motivator for a lot of things that they engage in. That is, that is one domain where the United States has, has historically uh, really dominated globally. Um, it's, it, for you know, the last 50, 60 years, we've kind of been the breadbasket of the world where uh, historically it had sort of been Europe. And um, the, the U.S. was first to really do some interesting stuff with mechanized agriculture. We were the first to... Um, it's a different discussion whether it's good or bad, but we were the first to really go big into uh, monocropping or monoculture, um, where farms would just go corn on corn on corn on corn on corn uh, in their rotation instead of rotating corn and oil seeds or different types of grains. Um, again, like I said, that's a very different discussion around is it good for us, is it healthy or whatever, but there's no denying that the global food system 
uh, by and large, certainly within the developed world, um, you know, what we would sort of consider as uh, greater, you know, greater Europe, uh, you know, the Far East, and then, and then of course, United States and North and the rest of North America. Um, that Americanized way of farming, where we have larger and larger and larger equipment, we focus very, very hard on uh, biotech, uh, you know, agri-science to continue to push yields. You know, we have Norman Borlaug to thank for kind of launching the green revolution, as it were, with uh, transgenic traits and things like that. Uh, again, I have to reinforce the, the the efficacy or health of it is a very different discussion. But uh, this is sort of the food supply chain that we have is this westernized kind of model in a lot of parts of the world. And the surplus that the United States does grow is has long been a, a, a trade tool for us and, and occasionally a trade weapon as well. Uh, whether you look at it being cotton or rice or corn or soybeans or wheat or whatever it may be. Uh, but fundamentally, you have a few countries at this point that have followed the model of large-scale industrial agriculture and really sort of have become kind of the breadbaskets of the world. Uh, Russia is extremely strong on grains. Uh, China is extremely strong on uh, animal proteins, uh, but also uh, has a pretty, you know, about 20% of the rice in the world is grown in China. Uh, a lot of the cotton in the world is grown in China, particularly in Western China, uh, in the Xinjiang region, uh, or Xinjiang. I, I, I barely, I barely speak English well, so I almost pronounce some of these things. But, um, but certainly in your staple cereal crops and oil seeds, the United States and Brazil uh, really kind of sort of stand above the rest, and everybody else has to kind of trade with us, uh, you know, out of our surpluses. So, very, very strong tool for us. When you look at the, the global choke points for the United States, to some extent, really from a food side, the only one we're really subject to is the Panama Canal, um, you know, which is how pretty much all of our Gulf and our Eastern seaboard trade is, is transacted uh, transpacifically. Um, we don't, most of the stuff that we send west uh, to the big buyers that we have in, in Korea, Taiwan, Vietnam, Philippines, China, Japan, um, that stuff is mostly going in bulk. Um, it's, so it's going to be going either out of the Gulf of New Orleans and transiting the Panama Canal, or it's going to be going out of the Pacific Northwest uh, and loading to bulk vessels there. So it's either going to rail to the U.S. West Coast, or it's going to go down uh, one of our main rivers, being the Missouri, the Ohio, or the Mississippi, uh, or their various tributaries, load at the Gulf in New Orleans and go overseas. Uh, we don't really have to worry so much about choke points. China, on the other hand, though, um, they do have to worry about, uh, you know, the coast of South Africa being an issue. A lot of the Brazilian grain that they buy transits around the southern tip of Africa and then goes straight across the Indian Ocean. At that point, they run into the Straits of Malacca. They run into that very serious potential issue there. Uh, it's the most con congested shipping channel in the world. Uh, and when it opens up into the South China Sea, the geopolitical situation is not a whole lot better there at this point. Um, so China's greatest vulnerability from a food security standpoint is the fact that in order to get adequate quantities of foodstuffs that must be imported, they have to go through two or even three potential conflict zones uh, in order to actually dock those ships and unload them. Uh, that's a huge issue for them, and it's something that they've tried to, to mitigate with uh, the China-Pakistan China Economic Corridor, uh, with the Trans-Eurasian Railways that they've built out. Um, they, they are doing what they can to mitigate that. Even now that we're seeing uh, some of the thinning of the ice caps in the Arctic, they're, they're you know, very much uh, utilizing and, and expanding their use of the Arctic sea routes uh, around the northern part of Russia and, and Europe. 
so they're doing what they can for that. Uh, so they're, from an energy and a food standpoint, far more vulnerable to disruptions at the Suez, at the Babel Mandib, uh, from an energy standpoint, certainly at the Strait of Hormuz, uh, but uh, certainly the Straits of Malacca there really are uh, very, very, very problematic. Um, the as to Europe, though, uh, you know, China gets mo a lot of its product from uh, EU uh, and from Brazil, and they only buy at this point. They only buy from the U.S. what they absolutely have to, like they have, uh, you know, since the implementation of the Phase One trade deal over the last few months. Um, I, I maintained at the time, and I still maintain that there's no way that that PRC would have kept up its commitments to buying agriculture commodities from the U.S. unless they hadn't been completely devastated by all the flooding and uh, disruptions that they had last year to their food supply uh, throughout 2020. So, um, again, major vulnerability for them, and that has serious downstream effects. Um, you know, when they can't buy from the U.S., they refuse to buy from the U.S. If Brazil supply is tight, they turn to Ukraine to buy corn and, and uh, probably sorghum to some extent uh, from Ukraine. So what happens when they can't buy from Brazil or the U.S.? And then Ukraine has what they had last year, uh, which is a pretty bad uh, drought around, uh, you know, as ear fill was occurring, as, as the plants were actually starting to uh, fill the ears, and they had serious yield drag on their corn. All of these issues kind of combined at once to, to create a very sort of untenable uh, supply situation. So, um, yeah, the, the choke points are not just geographic, but they're also weather related. Uh, and, and they're also the fact that, you know, the vast majority of China's incredible commercial activity happens at a relatively few port cities on its eastern seaboard. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is now the really good uh, timing to um, also wrap up it a little bit too politically that uh, mm -hmm. in my view in my view this uh, kind of alternative uh, connectivity that china is uh, trying to establish uh, this kind of terrestrial uh, connectivity uh, that you've mentioned like the mm -hmm. one um, terrestrial route via russia mm -hmm. then there is one uh, in the north which will be the case with the arctic with the northern route uh, which is now apparently um, going to be feasible even earlier than anticipated originally mm -hmm. so they are already working also on that matter and then we have another terrestrial uh, connectivity via Central Asia and now Turkey sees itself also as part of this uh, corridor mm -hmm. and then you've also mentioned Pakistan which is this economic uh, corridor that connects uh, China uh, through a port the Gwadar port uh, to the Indian Ocean so we see uh, or at least I uh, assess this kind of alternative connectivities as one way how China wants to cut certain dependencies mm -hmm. on maritime routes so basically on the existent supply chains so basically a way how china can also create an insurance for itself mm -hmm. in, in case that the american dominance of uh, the maritime routes would at some point uh, you know become um disadvantages to mm -hmm. Chinese uh, geopolitical and geoeconomic interests. And even though that we know that, for instance, uh, all these uh, uh, trains now going to Europe, you know, with mm -hmm. uh, production, with goods, uh, they uh, go back to China half empty. So it's not really, at least for now, 
but I suppose at some uh, at some at some point uh, in the future it might become uh, an alternative network uh, for Chinese supply chains. So would you would you consider this as a possible scenario, or is it just science fiction, just too future oriented? Um, um, and how I mean. It's obvious that there is more to it than just uh, energy and transport and connectivity mm -hmm. routes, right? If uh, a country announces to, um, you know, to 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 invest uh, more than a trillion of uh, U.S. dollars in the long term, I mean, it's of course also questionable whether this is going to be the reality. But we should uh, stick to what China officially announces. Uh, so, do you do you would you consider this as a uh, is a way how to create an alternative network of Chinese supply chains that would be completely uh, they would be completely isolating uh, uh, United States and also certain American partners. So it will provide a kind of uh, autonomy or sovereignty. Let's put it that way along this uh, uh, terrestrial connectivity. Yeah, China took a huge step forward in. Um... 2013, 2014. In fact, it's one of my most read and shared threads that, that I've done on Twitter uh, was about the, uh, I, I would say, strategically brilliant backdoor acquisition of Syngenta. Um, the, that, that was really the biggest, the biggest weak point that China had was they had very little to no indigenous biotech capability, uh, whether it was from designing transgenic traits for various crops, uh, uh, chemistry, um, you know, pest, you know, pesticide chemistry and things like that, uh, as well as advanced fertilizers. Uh, they, you know, China obviously had NPK capabilities, some micronutrients and things like that. But uh, uh, from a from an agricultural productivity standpoint, they very much lag behind uh, a lot of the rest of the developed world. Uh, the acquisition of Syngenta fixed that to the point that Syngenta is now the largest biotech company in the world. And at one time, I think it was number three or four. Um, that also led to a cascade effect. Now we've got Bayer and Monsanto that have merged together. Um, mm. You've got uh, Corteva, which is Corteva is the legacy uh, of uh, Dow and DuPont uh, that had come together into one big agroscience company. Um, so now you've, you've seen, and then BASF has kind of continued to stand alone on its own. But so from from an agrotech or from an agroscience, from a biotech standpoint. Uh, they made an enormous leap forward with that acquisition and have obviously continued to uh, put enormous uh, resources into that, uh, especially now that ChemChina and SinoChem are together. They kind of jointly own Syngenta. Uh, you're talking a, 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 you know, an agriculture, just a monolithic entity of capability, uh, particularly the R&D side. That was the first really big step that they took to avoid some of the issues that we're discussing here was sort of the tyranny of geography. and distance they needed to be more productive per acre and and they are doing that um in fact they were on track for a fantastic record year last year uh, until the rains began in january and uh, june and july so the we we've seen that um china is also facing some some demographic issues with regards to um they're an aging population to some extent uh from a long-term side the trends are not necessarily as good they're already at a billion and a half people that's a lot of mouths to feed and in a, in a perfect year, um, they won't really need the United States. Uh, they'll be able to trade with Brazil. Uh, they'll be able to trade with the EU. They'll be able to trade with Russia uh, and achieve some of those goals. Uh, in a year like this year, where you have uh, major disruption up and down the supply chain, whether it's weather, you know, adverse weather events, 
um, or uh, you know demand disruption in one place versus another. Uh, in China's own case, they've been dealing with African swine fever. Now they're going into the third year of it, although it seems to be sort of backing down as as an issue. Uh, they still have the issue of how to reconstitute their you know their swine population. Um, you know, and they can't they can't exactly raise enough goats and sheep to you know to offset that that protein demand. Um, so again, the the chicken they eat, the pork they eat, the beef they eat, all that has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but they are taking a lot of steps to mitigate that. It is a major national and strategic priority for them. I think they'll probably get to if you continue to include Brazil as part of the trade calculus for them. Um, they'll eight years out of ten they won't be dependent at at all. To, you know, on the United States for their supply of goods. So that pretty quickly then becomes we need to find ways to be able to lean on uh, India and Brazil, the EU, uh, these other sources of, of uh, grains and oil seeds and proteins um, and find ways to shift that balance of power uh, back towards the United States favor if you're looking at it from a perspective of how do you benefit um, you know, the greater United States Anglosphere sort of alliance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before we move to this, uh, because I have also specific questions on uh, India and Europe, so basically other sure. regional powers that will be somehow in between. Um, I have also an additional question that I think is very much relevant when it comes to the geopolitics of uh, supply chains, and that is the mm -hmm. question uh, related to semiconductors. Now, the semiconductors, uh, or uh, for those of our viewers uh, who have probably heard uh, the most spread uh, word, which is chips, um, are an essential component, right? They are at the heart of uh, not just, uh, you know, the geopolitics of the supply chains, as we've seen already mm -hmm. during the pandemic, uh, but also they are essential for economic growth, for technological innovations and breakthroughs, and also for security matters, right? Mm -hmm. So we also know that there will be significant, uh, they will have a significant importance for emerging technologies such as um, artificial intelligence. I had to bring to bring in this uh, question because you've mm -hmm. mentioned uh, an important uh, an important um, component and that is of course uh, uh, biotechnologies uh, but there are other also key technologies that will be witnessing uh, technological breakthroughs such as artificial intelligence and quantum computing and internet of things and all these other uh, advanced wireless communications so basically what is now being summed up uh, as a fourth industrial revolution of digitalization. Mm -hmm. So do you see um, semiconductors as being at the heart also of a, of a conflict between the United States and China when it comes to the supply chains? Um, and we know that also there is going to be a central role uh, meant for Taiwan. And we also know that right now China is very, very uh, concerned with um, basically facilitating its control over mm -hmm. Hong Kong. So at some point uh, of time in the future, uh, Taiwan might be the next on the list uh, when it comes to tightening up the control, you know, of mm -hmm. uh, the Communist Party and also the political control. And basically because Taiwan is key, right, for semiconductors. Do you think that this will be uh, a case also, a geopolitical case, uh, of course, when it comes to the trends? Um, 
for a disruption of the mm -hmm. supply chains. Yeah, if you read the tea leaves about some, the semiconductor shortages, one that kind of, I mean, it, 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 we, and we've periodically had semiconductor droughts, right? Uh, 2013, there was an issue, there was a major, uh, you know, foundry manufacturer in Shanghai that absolutely burned to the ground, uh, left the world, and I think it was eight or 10% at the time of the world's supply of chips. Um, you know, so we've, we've seen these issues where very periodically you have supplier demand disruption. Uh, but demand by and large has just continued to be almost a vertical line of growth uh, and, and supply has kept pace only to the extent that the relatively few foundries in the world uh, have been able to keep up. Uh, that's one area where Taiwan, I, I would say semiconductors is probably Taiwan's number one uh, geopolitical strategic resource. Um, for the United States, it's our defense material. It's the uh, you know advanced engineering and STEM capabilities we have in our schools uh, and it's our food. Um, you know, those are those are historically the ways the United States has, has achieved its means from an export side. Uh, in Taiwan's case, it's very much semiconductors. China wanted to uh, break their dependence on Taiwan uh, for that. Uh, unfortunately, they, they've not been able to. That's one of those sort of indigenous capabilities. They've not quite been able to scale the same way they could other things. And now you've seen this concentration of power down to a few Taiwanese companies, one American company, a couple of Chinese companies. And so China, instead of trying to play the current game, uh, which is how do they make, you know, how, how do they make traditional, you know, semiconductor technology, they're now looking at some other ways. How do they advance the technology and then corner that market? So uh, a good example is, is, you know, years and years and years ago, before anybody knew what was going on, uh, China state-owned enterprises were, were going around and snapping up uh, mining rights in all of these different places where bauxite is mined. Jamaica is one example. Uh, Guinea and uh, Africa is another example. Uh, and people wonder, well, what are they doing? Well, they're, they're making aluminum with all of that bauxite because bauxite refines into aluminum. Uh, but the thing is, is that bauxite doesn't become straight aluminum. It becomes alumina, which is a, precur you know, a precursor metal. Uh, in the process of manufacturing bauxite into alumina, the co-product is produced called gallium. And gallium actually has far better properties from a semiconductor standpoint than silicon does. Historically, though, it's not been as cheap, so we haven't made the stuff out of it the way we've made out of silicon as far as the wafers and things like that. Now, China, though, has been able to bend that cost curve down through research and through sort of cornering the world's supply of gallium. And that's one way they're trying to make these next-gen semiconductors that don't utilize some of the same technologies that, you know, Taiwanese or American chips do. But the, the, what, one of the reasons that the, the, the current semiconductor situation is all of a sudden entered the global consciousness is, yeah, that's been a major issue for production of video games and TVs and things like that. But uh, now all of a sudden in America, at least, and in Europe as well, uh, we can't make cars. We can't make cars because we don't have enough semiconductors. You know, Honda just idled five plants uh, in North America, one right here in my own backyard. Um, uh, Toyota has done the same. Ford is doing uh, some of that as well. I think a couple of European manufacturers uh, like VW have had, to, have had to slow or even stop production for a time. So, and that too is a perfect storm. Not only have we been seeing a shortage of raw materials, uh, certain kinds of tin, certain kinds of glass substrates, something called ABF, which is a, a resin uh, that helps, you know, bond a lot of the things together on the chips. I'm not super technical with it, but uh, it's an extremely, uh, it's a sole source almost. Almost all the world's chips use this ABF um, and it comes from, you know, it comes from one group. So all of these things, because of COVID, we've seen disruption to the supply chain. 
but what was really interesting a few months ago when I was first sort of aware of this issue and looking into it is um, that chip production, semiconductor production, takes a ton of water. Huge, huge, huge quantities of water uh, are used in the manufacturing of these chips. And at the time, Taiwan was going through a pretty severe uh, drought and water issue. And so they didn't even have available water supply to manufacture all the chips that they could. Um, so we've had this very, uh, this very severe dawning awareness of that a single point of failure for the entire global economy, particularly the digital economy, is this issue of chips. And within that, there's not really a, a um, robust sourcing and manufacturing capability. Um, you know, highly fragile, right? As Talib would say, it's it's and it's because we've built up these interdependencies in some ways, but now that they're in conflict, you know, reunification with Taiwan uh, between PRC and ROC has been a, a priority, a stated priority of the CCP going back as far back as the revolution. Um, and they've made some overtures in the past about how they want to do that. But uh, is it really a coincidence that now all of a sudden they're rattling their sabers hard at Taiwan in the last year or two as the semiconductor issue has, has really begun to kind of rear its head? Um, so that's a case of where you're starting to see the fragility of global supply chains, the breakdown of trade, the breakdown of, you know, traditional normative ways we've kind of balanced economies globally. Now, all of a sudden, may, like I said, if you can't trade for it, you'll fight for it. And that that seems to be one of the bigger threats that we've seen. And some of the things I've seen people say is, why can't we just make more chips? Why can't we just bring more factories online? I mean, you're talking billions and billions and billions of dollars just to build a, a large scale factory. And from the time you first turn the tap on financially to the time you can actually start making these chips is anywhere from four to six years. So, you know, if we only start building in a time of shortage, it's four to six years, no matter how fast we push that curve before we're able to address that mess, right? So it's a situation that is um, durable to some extent that, that's gonna continue to be with us for a while. Um, but I also think as you see consumer spending on things start to pull back, you will find, if not equilibrium, at least a little bit of a softening of the pain uh, because we're not going to be sitting around our houses forever, you know, staring at all the electronics we want to update or the cars that we want to buy. Um, so that, you know, demand destruction of consumer appetites will actually help moderate that to some extent. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I think that one, uh, one, one, major issue that is often actually disregarded is uh, how long it in fact takes mm -hmm. for these supply chains to be built mm -hmm. and once being built how long it actually takes for them to be reconfigured yeah. <laughs> so it's a very long-term uh, highly complex process and just uh, take a very 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 fresh example with the vaccines uh, production mm -hmm. so it's not even easy once even if you have a vaccine it's not easy to uh, facilitate the production of this vaccine mm -hmm. it takes a lot you know along the supply chain to actually facilitate the process which we unfortunately witnessed in the case of Europe mm -hmm. basically we uh, we still lack a lot of vaccines here in most of the European states mm -hmm. and uh, until the whole supply chain is uh, being uh, created uh, mm -hmm. it will take certainly uh, further further months which will actually slow down the process of uh, vaccination which is devastating because 
uh, after you know the good news of uh, having a vaccine and not even one but many mm -hmm. basically you know having having even a choice between several vaccines it's still not enough it's still we are not there yet uh, and and i am uh, giving this example because one of the uh, I want to move to another important regional actor, mm -hmm. and that is India. Because, mm -hmm. like I said, I place a lot of my focus on. Uh, I put a lot of my focus on uh, the Indo-Pacific region, and I think that India is going to be this key regional player, which will build a lot of counter counterweight to China's yes. to China's activities, not just in the region but beyond. Mm -hmm. And um, and you've mentioned already initiatives that uh, link. China to Pakistan. So uh, let uh, me just shortly uh, mention that Pakistan has been a strategic ally of uh, United States for many, many, uh, you know, for for decades. And uh, now it looks like uh, Pakistan is uh, turning towards uh, towards uh, China. But then again, India is reconsidering its relationship with the United States and. Uh, Obviously, there will be strategic ties um, at the highest ranking uh, level uh, between the two countries, but also in a, within a network with other regional partners. Mm -hmm. So um, what is your take on how India might be one missing puzzle in this global reconfiguration of uh, supply chains? Is it um, is it a realistic scenario, uh, specifically now uh, within the terms in the terms of the digital revolution? Because <laughs> India certainly has uh, a lot to offer, and I also would link this question to because I see that there is a question in the chat uh, in the chat room, which is um, uh, considering. Uh, um, which is considering India, <laughs> and that is related to diversifying the pharma. The pharma industry, the pharma IPs, uh, AP, sorry, uh, which is uh, so. The question is: even India seems to now be somewhat dependent for, uh, you know, for this um, uh, application programming interfaces uh, uh, on on China. So, what is your take? If you have uh, an experience or if you have a view on this matter, I'm, um, you know, the thesis of anything with me involving India is that I'm bullish on them, and I, you know. In, in so many ways, and not only do I think because um, India in so many ways has what uh, the United States doesn't enjoy. Now, obviously, India is an extremely diverse country with a, just a huge number of different uh, groups. Uh, some have overlapping, some have competing interests, just like any other country does. China does, the U.S. does, but uh, from a national leadership standpoint, um, they they chart they began charting a course about 20 years ago that they've more or less stayed on, and that path was strategic neutrality. Um, if you look at the mix of uh, you know India, I believe is the number one or two largest defense technology importer, and whereas with say Saudi Arabia, who has been by and large you know the U.S. is number one foreign military sales uh, partner, uh, at least in terms of procurement. Um, India has bought from a, a range of, uh, they, they've got indigenous manufacturing like of their Tejas plane. Um, they've, they buy the Rafale jets from Europe. They're buying uh, the Russian S-400, you know, uh, anti-air system. 
they've got U.S. technology. Uh, I believe it's Lockheed's getting ready to start exporting the F-21 to them, which is just sort of a bigger body version of the F-16. Um, so they, they've really kind of put their eggs in a lot of different baskets strategically and I think been very, very smart. At the same time, they've been a very, uh, a very, you know, one of the, you know, obviously cornerstone partners of the Quad uh, and of the larger Quad Plus, uh, you know, the Quadrilateral Security Agreement. Um, geographically, India is a gigantic barrier to any sort of uh, Chinese expansionism. Um, you're talking a, a country with one of the largest, you know, land masses uh, as far as national borders go. Highly productive country agriculturally. A growing population, uh, and ed a population that's increasingly educated. Um, so when you take a look at a lot of these things, you're seeing, a, uh, I think, a future, I think already probably by definition of great power on the borderline, but I, I think you're talking a future potential superpower as well. Um, you've got a lot of things happening in India that are very, very positive, uh, whether it's from a demographic or from an industrialization standpoint. Of course, they have problems domestically. They have problems internationally, things that they're going to run into. But you're talking about a country here that's very, very well positioned uh, to, to play a decisive determining role in the next 50 to 100 years of the, of the greater Indo-Pacific and, and even sort of the worldwide um, you know, economy and, and uh, you know, how the defensive arrangements look. So um, on the medical side, yeah, India is just really continuing. It looks... Every indicator is that they're stepping forward uh, and, and really making unexpected progress, progress that's, that's almost unnaturally fast, which is a good thing. Um, I think of vaccines. India was not expected at the outset of the vaccination race. India was not expected to be uh, a player. Now, when you look at what they've been able to do, India is one of, one of the top exporters uh, of vaccines as far as donating vaccines, as far as getting their own people vaccinated. Um, just a really uh, unexpected supply chain success, not because nobody thought they could do it, but because they did it so far ahead of the pace of other countries who were thought to be more advanced. Um, and, and they absolutely have proven that, that uh, they, they just have this really phenomenal capability. The biggest barrier, I would say, for India, at least from a commercial standpoint, is the fact that they are situated firmly in the middle of every one of these choke points that we've talked about. Um, if India needs to export goods going east, you know, depending on which way you look at the globe, uh, but to the United States, we would say for the United States to continue to grow as a trade partner with India, we have to address the fact that there's really no good way to get from India to the U.S. and still avoid uh, places that are under, under very uh, strong Chinese influence, whether it's uh, Straits of Malacca, where not only do you deal with Indonesia and you deal with uh, Singapore and you deal with Malaysia and you deal with China all being in that area. You also have the pirate, the issue of piracy being continuing to be a problem. If they wanted to go West and go through the med, then you're talking about two choke points, three, if you include the Straits of Gibraltar. So you, you've got a situation there where India is going to be to some extent limited by again, the, the, the tyranny of distance and geography. But, um, India has a very strong and capable and growing Navy that they're investing heavily into. Um, so the ability to secure uh, the sea lines of communication, secure their domains within the global commons to ensure, you know, fluid and smooth trade. Uh, I think they'll be able to do that as well. So it's not going to happen overnight for them, but I think we're going to look at, you know, look back in 10 years from now in 2030, 2031 and say, how did we never see this coming?
Um, mm. Because I do believe India is going to be just one of the phenomenal success stories in the next half century. Well, I absolutely share your uh, view on India specifically. I'm very, very bullish on uh, on this country, and I'm con convinced, in fact, that if there is one country that really can uh, can build a counterweight on many uh, domains, so in many domains, uh, in many areas, and of course, collectively together with other partners in mm -hmm. other countries, not not in a single act, that would be India, and it's not just projected to become a third um, major economic power in the next uh, decade. But I think that uh, now um, the situation has also shifted uh, positively mm -hmm. because if you, if you look at, for instance, what uh, Great Britain has published in its very recent uh, paper uh, strategy, so on foreign policy uh, priorities and goals, um, now Great Britain will be uh, certainly looking at uh, into Pacific region, and it has all this, uh, you know, experience from the past mm -hmm. when Great Britain was a global power and was interconnected also via global supply chains. So, so before before America, before United States, we had already an example of globalization following industrial revolutions, so you know, following the first, second industrial revolution, so having a global power which had established, basically had established, uh, you know, all these networks and all these supply chains, and uh, one of the major dots in these networks was was India. Now, uh, things uh, have shifted positively because India will be um, this bigger and more strategic partner, but on the other side, of course, um, and why am, am I mentioning uh, Great Britain is because I also would like to uh, hear your opinion, your view on uh, Europe's role in all these reconfigurations, in all these kind of, uh, you know, uh, geopolitical developments uh, in, uh, in this new uh, Indo-Pacific decade. Do you see a role for Europe? I mean, Besides uh, Great Britain, do you think that Europe um, might become uh, what I call the geopolitical backyard of the world? Um, or maybe there will be a kind of a new role, a new significant role for European powers to um, facilitate, uh, for instance, uh, partially at least, uh, the freedom of navigation mm -hmm. um, in the wider Mediterranean area in the Indo-Pacific where they have strong interests because this will affect otherwise their international trade, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I see um, th there's some really, uh, well, I suppose it depends on perspective if you want to call them interesting or concerning or whatever it may be, but uh, like most of the Western world, um, India is, or excuse me, uh, the EU is un largely undergoing um, a demographic transition, a very rapid one. Um, across the EU, um, you know, they're, uh, the number of children, I think it's like 1.6 per household now, uh, replacement rates 2.1, uh, from a fertility standpoint in order to maintain a stable population of, of your own indigenous population. So what population growth we have seen in EU has been driven largely by immigration. Um, that carries with it some really interesting and, and, uh, exciting opportunities. Uh, it also carries with it some some uh, risk, particularly when you take a look at the EU as a whole. It's it's a little bit more uh, from a social safety net standpoint, socialized 
uh, most of the countries, you know, have uh, very uh, cheap and available healthcare uh, as far as, but when you're talking an aging native population, when you're talking a, a inward influx uh, of immigrants coming from all different parts of the world um, who by and large are not carrying with them uh, four-year college degrees or terminal degrees and, and STEM fields and things like that, they're coming there to get those or they're coming there to uh, become at some level members of the, of the society, but they will need a bit of a hand up uh, when you take it across. So you've got a situation now where Europe's native population is aging uh, the immigrant population that's coming in is changing some of the labor and workforce dynamics available uh, to the European countries. And now what we're seeing is is sort of this, uh, even UK was part of it. And initially when Brexit happened, I, I had kind of thought, well, then we're going to see a, you know, a, a Frexit and a Spexit and a, and a Grexit. We're going to, you know, we're going to see all of these uh, mm. nations begin and, and that the, the EU would die sort of a death of a thousand cuts. That's not what's happened. Um, the EU has largely hung together, uh, you know, in, in sort of a post-Brexit world. But now what we're seeing is, um, I think, a change because it's driven by the demographic and migration issue. It's also driven by EU's dependence on uh, Russian energy. Um, you have the eastern part of Europe that is, you know, was historically either abutted to or a part of the Soviet Union, still very much remembers those lessons, and they've they've begun to align in this, this trade and infrastructure alliance of the three C's initiatives. Um, you know, that's, that's largely being led by Poland, uh, but you have, I, I forget how many nations, it's 12 or 13 nations that are a part of it now. And it's even starting to creep down into the Balkans and, and into Greece, into the Mediterranean region. So now with TSI nations, you've got kind of this shield wall uh, against, you know, Central Asia, against Russia. Um, of nations that are maybe looking at things a little bit differently. It's a strongly pro-transatlantic alliance. They very much value the relationship with the United States. The ones that are members of NATO tend to have a higher, uh, several of them, Poland, I know for sure, I think Estonia is as well, are hitting that 2% of GDP spending benchmark on defense that NATO nominally requires. Uh, any of the Western European NATO allies are, are not anywhere near that. Um, so that's Germany and that's France, and they still have very robust economies in a lot of ways, very strong manufacturing bases, strong defense bases. Uh, but I think you're starting to see a situation occur where they're going to begin to, they're, they're going to be outpaced a little bit by world events, I think, in the next 25 years. Uh, I, I, I maintain the thesis that the future of Europe in a lot of ways is going to be determined by how strong the Three Seas Initiative is able to um, work together and cooperate on uh, infrastructure and trade type things that achieve the goal of, you know, sort of keeping the geopolitical wolves outside the gate, um, while also being able to be a counterbalance to some of the bigger nations within the EU uh, and their policies and, and programs. So I think the EU, before I can figure out what it means to the world in the next decade, probably needs to figure out what it means to itself as far as how it's structured and, and how that sort of unified alignment is going to look with the world. Um, because right now it's very much, as we've seen in the last couple of months, very much in a tug of war between the sort of bipolar world we've become, which is largely the U.S. Anglosphere and then the, the allies of that. And then, you know, what a term that I, I don't know if you coined it, but I certainly first encountered it with you, which is this, the dragon, the dragon bear sort of sphere of influence. And, and so you're seeing a world that, you know, between Russia and China, they can manufacture and feed energy and feed food, 
uh, to a large part of their sphere of influence. Uh, that's a really difficult counterweight to, um, to that it's really difficult to oppose that alone. The Anglosphere won't be able to do that. And so Europe will, as it finds itself trending in some directions that maybe look negative, I think you're also going to see Europe kind of become the, the, the force multiplier that both of these spheres are fighting over uh, in order to sort of gain that, that geostrategic advantage over the other. That's really amazing. You touched upon so many new points and I'm, I, I, I'm looking at the clock and I see that we are running out of time, but I need to ask you two further questions. I also addressed uh, questions from the audience, so uh, we are safe, but um, first uh, the TRISIS initiative, uh, once again, I share your view. It's really going to be key to European uh, future infrastructure projects because um, yes, it uh, includes 12 countries, most of them uh, being members of the former Soviet, uh, Soviet uh, Union bloc. Uh, but also Austria, for instance, is part of it, and Austria is at the heart of, uh, literally at the heart of Europe, mm -hmm. basically centered in, uh, if you look at the map, uh, centered, uh, you know, in Europe, and uh, is uh, logistically and geographically really, really uh, good, uh, you know, a focal point, actually, uh, for each corner of, the, of Europe. And then uh, what is really important about this TRISIS initiative, um, is that uh, it uh, should connect uh, the north and the center with the south and it would basically open up this huge new economic space uh, towards Africa. So uh, this is the one thing that I need to ask you, mm -hmm. where do you see Africa or maybe you see just, you know, individual African countries or uh, African regions um, as being key to the um, reconfigurations of global supply chains because I think that for instance uh, Europe would uh, seize an immense opportunity if they manage to uh, uh, reconnect uh, with, with Northern Africa and basically uh, try to try to connect uh, you know uh, the European continent with, with, with the African continent mm -hmm. in all possible ways specifically now when it comes to digital the digitalization and the second question I have is of course because you mentioned the dragon bear and this is a term I coined in 2015 to follow uh, the systemic coordination between China and um, Russia so my question will be related to uh, your view on Russia's role in uh, China China's China's actions and steps towards reconfigura reconfiguration of the supply chains away from United States because I don't see this process as only US linked or US led one because in the most of the analysis we will we will read that uh, it's the it's America that wants to reconfigure away from China but I think that China is also working on you know on this reconfiguration on this decoupling in the long term and I think that Russia might be a key uh, player for them so what what is your view on Russia's role, and I promise that these are the two questions uh, to, to close the session because we, we are really beyond the time. It's okay. Um, so when, when it comes to the matter of Africa, you, you really have three factions um, that, that I see vying the hardest. Um, you have, uh, broadly speaking, we'll just say China. 
Um, China, I think, has made the most inroads uh, in the last 20 years there. Um, they can, they can, you know, of course, China came in with promises of, um, you know, we're, we're going to do this economic development and educational development and all these other things. And fundamentally, what it's been is it's been sort of a predatory relationship a little bit. Um, yes, they've built some railways, they've upgraded some ports, they've done some different things, but uh, it's fundamentally been about resource extraction, you know, feeding the industrial and man manufacturing maw uh, of the Chinese political, you know, political and economic engine. Uh, but you can't deny that China has probably made the most inroads in Africa uh, in the last 20 years. You have, broadly speaking, um, you know, we talk a lot about the MENA region, but the, the ME part of the MENA region, the Middle East, uh, really shows an extraordinary interest there as well. Um, you've got Qatari, you've got Turkish, uh, UAE, KSA. Uh, you've got a number of these countries that are extremely active in the affairs, uh, not, not only because it, it involves the western flank of the Middle East with the Red Sea and the eastern part of the Med, um, but you're also talking about uh, the same thing China's after, right, which is resources. And there are a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of the critical and strategic materials that appears on every developed country's list, uh, we need this for these projects, shows up in pretty uh, pretty large quantity in a lot of these African nations. Um, where And then, of course, you have the European influence as well, which I, to my observation is largely led by France um, to this point as far as interventionism, particularly in, in Northern Africa. Um, so we've got We've got kind of this situation where Africa, again, uh, as it has been through throughout the last 400 years of globalization, uh, sort of in a post-VOC, post-British East India Company world, uh, again, continues to kind of be the subject uh, subjected to the, the needs and wants of, of larger entities. Um, there are, in, in my view, glimmers of hope um, that some nations at least don't want to treat that relationship predatorily. My vision for the United States, as far as its interactions with Africa, the United States has one thing going for it that, that we, we use to too little of effect, which is that we can absorb a huge amount of economic loss in, the, in, in pursuit of larger strategic interest. And what I mean by that is, is when you look at the conception of what Belt and Road has been, when you look at how some of the other powers that that have made Africa their playground or their their you know their resource uh, uh, resource and supply uh, you know warehouse, the U.S. has a real opportunity to come into these countries and say, look, not only will we buy you out of these Belt and Road loans that require you at the first sign of default to sign over the assets, uh, what we want to do is we want to come in and we want to help you build infrastructure and we want to build indigenous knowledge. We want to teach you guys how to fish, not just give you a fish and promise you that the world is coming to save you. I don't think you help anybody uh, by by keeping them dependent on handouts, and and that's at a domestic or an international scale. Uh, you help people when you're able to, when you truly beneficently help them help them help themselves. So for these countries that that where maybe a specific mineral or group of minerals is their main resource, instead of bringing in Western interests or Chinese interests to mine that. Why don't we bring in some of the very expensive stuff, which is the capital assets, the heavy equipment, things like that, and bring in some, you know, some of our own foremen, but teach them, train them, give them something that is, you know, an environmentally safe place to work. And then from those proceeds, develop infrastructure, develop schools, develop 
hospitals, help raise the standard of living there, and don't do it in such a way that it's just about resource extraction or we're gonna leave scraps for you. Do it in such a way that you can eventually, if they chose to say, sever that relationship, they can sever that relationship. But at that time, you know, the, the larger interest has said, and, and my model for it would be if we need a specific, go in and say, look, the last 10 years price of this has been X. We will pay X plus 20% on an offtake agreement for that. And we'll leave all the CapEx and, and resources behind and all the institutional knowledge that we left you with. And now you can determine your own fate and sell to who you want. And the United States gets five or 10 years of exclusivity in exchange for that, but we take no profits. We have the ability to do that where a lot of countries aren't willing to if we just think about the fact that that there is a win-win out there that doesn't involve predatory behaviors, it doesn't involve promises that are never kept, and it doesn't involve subjugating or extracting the labor and resources of these countries while giving nothing back. It has to be fair. In fact, it has to be more than fair. It has to, it has to, the, the benefit has to be tilted so far in favor of the partner nation that 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 they receive, you know, 25 or 50 years uh you know worth of worth of uh value from a five-year project and mm -hmm. i think if we if, if we come at the problem that way i think we resolve a lot of these issues that currently africa faces where um individually or together the, the so far have not been able to really stop uh kind of the strip mining of their of their land and civilizations by by great powers um the us is engaged in that behavior um but I think we have a real opportunity and moment in time here where we can change that uh, and, and really try to do the right thing. That's what I would like to see at least come of it. Um, and I think if we did that, I, th I certainly believe Europe, most of the Middle East would follow that lead too. Oh, I absolutely concur with your view <laughs> once again, because I think that this is the only way out of this, uh, so to say, uh, vicious circle, you mm -hmm. know, uh, re replacing one dependency with a new one which is based on the very same idea, is uh, only going to draw um, the continent into more misery and more uh, tragic, uh, you know, destinies. And also, I think that uh, uh, it's a unique opportunity right now because um, um, the progress, the, the 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 missing progress from the previous industrial revolutions, can be skipped by adding the progress from this digital revolution, right? So you you actually uh, can skip certain certain uh, you know waves of uh, of, of uh, economic uh, development, in my view. And also, what is really uh, unique about the situation is that you can also directly address the local communities. So you do not need this top-down way of approaching you know the the problems which we know how it will end up mm -hmm. right because of uh, one of the structural problems of these elites so there is uh, you know not going to uh, to change in the next uh, decades for sure but uh, the local communities uh, have now also their way of engaging with you know external actors in my view yes. but the time is very spare, so Understood. maybe maybe a few words also on Russia, which I think is going to be an interesting case, mm -hmm. um, in a way that um, so far they've changed places with China, right? On the one side, uh, if we listen also to the decision makers and to the narratives and the statements, uh, 
it's um, right from the beginning, uh, also during the, this administration, China, China, China. Yes, of course, we've heard also about uh, some, you know, some, some uh, not very pleasant statements already about uh, the Russian president on the side of uh, Biden, but this was expected more or less. Uh, and yet, it's going to be, it seems, um, ch China, about China rather than Russia, right? So, mm. how do you see uh, Russia in this, uh, in this uh, you know, bipolar context? Uh, what will be the, the puzzle piece that Russia will have to uh, add to this uh, geopolitical picture, in your view? Russia is not ever going to be a manufacturing powerhouse on the level of what the United States once was, could be again, uh, certainly on the level of what China is now or even what India is capable and, and already growing into uh, becoming. Big part of that is the fact of, you know, Russia's geography. Um, they don't really, Russia's coastline does not really make sense in any way as a hub for shipping. Um, that's why you've seen uh, relative and Russia, frankly, is, is geographically massive. Um, it is, it's, it's really astonishing when you look at it, you know, if you look at it on like, you know, Mercator style map that everything's flattened out and everything, it looks even huge. But then when you look at Russia from the top down, if you're like looking at a view of the Arctic circle and you see that about a third of the, you know, circumference of the world is, is, is Russian coastline at the top of the world, it's, it's amazing. Right. And so, because of that, they are going to be in some ways limited. Uh, Russia has always been, and, and to, to my view, will always be an absolute powerhouse of defense article manufacturing. Uh, they're obviously an energy powerhouse, and so long as fossil fuels remains the dominant way we power our world, uh, they're going to have a tr tremendous amount of, uh, of influence there. But I see them in a lot of ways being, I see Russia in a lot of ways being not always malign, not always peaceful uh, actor in the greater, you know, sort of Eurasian balance of power. Um, I don't look at Russia the same way a lot of Americans do. We still remember the Soviet Union and things like that. But at the end of the day, I think Putin's goals are more about regional hegemonic status um, and and sort of building a massive geopolitical buffer around Russia for, for he and, and whatever follows after him to be able to um, operate sort of with impunity within their own sphere of influence. Uh, I, I think that is their goal. Um, and, and to that end, uh, to some extent, exporting lots of energy products into and, and having large bilateral trade with Europe serves that goal. Uh, selling weapons into the Middle East and utilizing, you know, the Wagner uh, mercenary outfit to achieve geopolitical ends in an asymmetric way is another way of doing it. And then partnering up with China in other ways uh, on energy and things like that, uh, and, and then on bigger geopolitical maneuvers. And so they've kind of covered themselves to the west, south, and to the east. So you've got a situation where I think that's really, truly what Russia is after uh, to the extent that U.S. interests come in conflict with one of those. Um, that's a problem, right? The, the, as we've seen with Russia, uh, Putin and, and his, his cabinet and his inner circle are extremely politically canny, very savvy individuals. Uh, they are uh, ruthless when they need to be. Um, but this is not, you know, this is not, uh, you know, what we would call in the U.S., you know, touch football or flag football. It's full contact. And, and they, you know, Russia plays for keeps. 
and and so does China. And so that's the political reality we have to be aware of, but also balance it with the fact that to the extent that we are here and Russia is there from a U.S. side, it's not quite maybe as dire uh, as we make it out to be. Because I think if it was, the, the tenor and tone of how the United States talks about Russia politically uh, would be very, very different than it is today. Um, it's easy to blame someone that you don't really think is going to has a re need to punch back. And to, to, to my observation as, an, as you know, the 20 years as an adult, uh, mostly have seen Putin and other, you know, Russian politicians and leaders act generally out of uh, fairly rational behaviors, uh, as opposed to seemingly irrational behaviors. And rationally speaking, right now, it's um, they make sense as part of the larger dragon bear you know, sphere of influence. Uh, but obviously with their own goals to achieve within that. Mm -hmm. By the way, a uh, question that is related to this, uh, this particular uh, issue about uh, Russia. Mm -hmm. Do you think, are we going to witness uh, the continuation of global supply chains uh, expanded towards the space? China and Russia announced just recently that they are planning to build an international space station on the moon. Do you think, are we going to witness a kind of a competition over global supply chains in the space? Yes. Is this a science? Uh, un un unequivocally. unequivocally it's, uh, it, it, it's going to spin out of control rapidly. Um, the, the cost of commercializing space has come down so much in the last five years that you have one entrepreneur now albeit it's elon musk um but you have one entrepreneur who has almost single-handedly for the united states commercialized space uh before it was always nasa and you had a few people sort of playing at the fringes of it but as far as being able to i mean he's already deployed you know the starlink satellite constellation um to where you can get 99 dollars a month internet and phone and whatever um, when you look at what he's done there, when you look at his very ambitious and reachable goals, he's proving that, that it doesn't even take a state actor. It just takes a really well-funded, motivated, brilliant non-state actor to do some of these things. He's not going to be the only one. Bezos is right behind him with Blue Origin and with what he wants to do. In fact, Bezos is pulling back control, uh, span, his span of control over Amazon so he can focus on space. And we're also seeing state and other non-state actors elsewhere wanting to do these things. And as you said, Russia and China agreeing to basically colonize the moon and extract the resources that are available there. If they're gonna colonize the moon, then they obviously need to be able to build a supply chain to the moon and a logistics chain to bring the raw materials that they're extracting on the moon back to earth. So they're not going to the moon to stay on the moon. They're gonna stay on the moon so they can send stuff back to earth. So when you talk about that, that decision alone is now driving the requirement for cheap reusable launch capability um, the ability to build way stations in space, uh, whether it's for habitation or for refueling or whatever it may be, that's now between what Bezos is doing, what Musk is doing, what China and Russia are doing, what the EU is doing, what UAE is now doing. UAE's got a Mars lander out there too. So when we talk about all these things, it's we're now going to see, I think, a, this, this absolute explosion in activity in the commercial domain of space, not just from what has historically been relegated to a few large state actors or great powers or superpowers. Uh, but you're, you're, we're 10 or 15 years away from, you know, seeing 
you know, some form of conflict in space where either satellites are trying to take each other out or whatever it may be. So very quickly, the number one thing the world has to do if it wants to avoid the same sort of things we've seen terrestrially also happen in space outside Earth's atmosphere, uh, we need to get to some form of, you know, admiralty law uh, like we have that governs air freight and, uh, and ocean freight trade in the U.S. We need to view space in a lot of ways as an extension of the concept of global commons, uh, except now it's extraterrestrial or extra global commons. Um, but we need to get some sort of definition and framework in place that is also enforceable to where if you are a state or non-state actor who acts up out there, then there are actual consequences that can be held against you here. Um, I don't think that work is happening fast, fast enough to keep up with the pace uh, because at some point it, it could be Astra, it could be Rocket Lab, uh, it could be SpaceX scaling down. Uh, even to smaller, you know, rockets, it could be China, you know, figuring, you know, squaring that circle. Somebody, though, is going to figure out how to way to put a lot of stuff in space very, very cheaply, very, very quickly. And at that point, Katie, bar the door, um, we will be fighting a very difficult battle to fix that if we don't want it to be the Wild West. Well, I think that we opened the door to actually a new discussion, mm -hmm. <laughs> which uh, I hope uh, that we will have uh, the chance uh, to do another time because sure. uh, um, it's uh, really uh, interesting and highly complex, but then again, also uh, dynamic and very fluid topic. Yes. And it entails so many, so many different issues that need also to be addressed if we want to get the big picture. And I really, really, I'm really uh, glad that uh, we could uh, actually have this discussion, timely discussion. Uh, there are, were a lot of trends that we've also addressed. And um, I want to thank you for yes, your excellent insights and for your views and also for your assessment on the current uh, picture regarding global supply chains. Thank you very much. Thank you, Polina. Appreciate the time. I appreciate uh, for being uh, for being with me in the last uh, almost, uh, I think, uh, 90, 90 minutes. We really, really uh, ex exploded the, 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 the time frame and I'm thankful also for your patience to stay with me so long. No, it's uh, it's fantastic. I, uh, I love this stuff and I hope uh, I hope that you know anybody who took the time or will be taking the time to watch this uh, learned and found it engaging. It's uh, uh, it's certainly very important stuff but to a lot of people it's a little bit dry as well so uh, um, but I think uh, I do think there's a lot of meat on the bone here and, and certainly a lot of follow-up type stuff to be discussed too. Absolutely, and let's agree to continue this uh, important conversation, uh, hopefully not uh, based on unpredicted uh, so unforeseen <laughs> events, but uh, just to give an update to our viewers about uh, these exciting topics. Yes, ma'am.